This programme was produced at and first aired on NPR, Manawatu People's Radio, with support from New Zealand On Air. Kapai Irarangi Tomotu, NPR. Support this show and others like it by giving a donation. For more information, go to www.mpr.nz forward slash donate. Hi, I'm Greg Watson and welcome to this week's show of Property Matters where we talk all things property. Fantastic having your company here today. There's been a lot happening in the news. I've pulled out some articles to have a little bit of a talk about what's happening in this region, what's happening regionally in New Zealand and with the market in general. So this is a real estate related show where we talk about all things property. If we have time, I've got some stories in the section that I call Shocking Landlords, Shocking Tenants. So that'll be towards the end of the show. The first article that I saw this week was that the Manawatu Gorge Replacement Highway gets the final go-ahead. And in this article it says, Motorists stuck using a glorified goat track to cross the central North Island have a light at the end of the tunnels. This was on Stuff Motoring section. The Environment Court has granted Waka Kotahi NZ Transport Agency resource consent to build the Tiahu Aturanga a four-lane highway across the Ruahine Ranges between Woodville and Ashurst. So the agency wants to build the road to replace State Highway 3 through the Manawatu Gorge, which was closed and has been closed since April 2017 after multiple slips. And some of you may recall the concerns a hillside might collapse onto the road. So there are around about 7,000-plus vehicles a day, and that includes heavy trucks that usually use the Gorge Road have been using the Saddle Road. So the new road will be a much-needed replacement for the closed Gorge Road, and construction of the new road starts in January, and it's expected to be completed by the end of 2024. How does this relate to property? Well, this is going to boost the wider Manawatu economy with uh, the agency recruiting drivers, operators, carpenters, labourers, and more, with a focus of employing people in the area. So good news if you're looking for work, that there are the possibilities available. So a new car park is being built at the end of the Ashurst uh, I beg your pardon, at the Ashurst end of the gorge for those accessing the walking tracks because a current car park will be a base for building a bridge across the Manawatu River. So it'll be interesting to see that being done for those of you who are regular walkers. So there is an animated video flyover on the uh, Land Transport New Zealand website as well. In other news, this on News Talk ZB, work from home sees a boom in lifestyle property sales. So data from the Real Estate Institute shows that more than 8,000 lifestyle properties were sold in the year to October 2020, and that's 1,100 more than the previous period. Bailey's agent Karen Asquith told Mike Hosking, with more and more people working from home, many people are happy to live a bit further out. As long as you can still commute off-peak within that magic hour, people are really looking to be out on the land, have kids go back to a country lifestyle school and take a lamb to Ag Day. She says the market's going crazy. She's saying that we're as busy as we've been for many, many years. We're doing a lot of property matches. Let's hope it stays buoyant, but let's hope it doesn't go absolutely crazy. So this could could carry on from the COVID situation where people had to work from home, deciding that actually that's a pretty good situation to be in. So 1,100 more sales of lifestyle properties around the country in the past 12 months. Here's an article from Stuff Lifestyle. Renting in Porirua is more expensive than Sydney and Melbourne. 
what an awesome headline that is. Not if you live in Pararua, of course, but uh, who would have thought that we'd see that headline in at least our lifetimes, that renting in Pararua is more expensive than Sydney and Melbourne. So it's quite amazing that uh, they give the example of a postgraduate drama and film student, Olivia Fox, who traded Wellington City for Melbourne in January. And despite spending 111 days confined in her two-bedroom apartment, uh, as she's on, as uh, due to COVID, she said she would never go renting in Wellington again. She pays 211 New Zealand dollars per week to live with one other person in the Brunswick West Flat, a five-minute walk from the tram line into the city. But as an undergraduate, Fox was paying 185 dollars a week uh, in a four-bedroom quarry house that she shared with five other flatmates, including two couples. Incredible, and just her part was 180 per week. So the median house for rent in Melbourne was New Zealand $422 per week in September. Median rent in Sydney was 570 New Zealand dollars. Yet uh, Wellington weekly median rent climbed to $600 the same month, and the bustling metropolis of Porirua actually eclipsed Wellington City and became the most expensive rental district in the country after its median price climbed to record $625 a week in September. So pretty incredible there in terms of uh, that headline. And here's another headline for you for those of you uh, who are familiar with the history of this particular building. And this is from the Stuff Lifestyle section. You may recall um, in recent weeks we've talked about uh, the airport control tower that was sold uh, here's something else. This is the tower at the former, former Avalon TVNZ base to become an apartment complex. This is interesting. A developer, Ian Castles, is converting the tower at TVNZ's former and somewhat iconic Avalon Studios in Lower Hutt into 68 apartments. Some of you may remember this. It's a 10-storey tower uh, and it's in Lower Hutt. Uh, it's going to be a two-year, $20 million project to gut and refit the 1970s concrete building into 68 units. That would be something really cool to see once it's done. Some of you may have been there before to be in the audience of shows or to be on shows themselves, um, as, as I have uh, back in the day. So the tower is actually that most prominent feature of the former TV studio complex. Um, back then it was opened under the New Zealand Broadcasting Corporation as New Zealand's first purpose-built television centre. But it has been mainly unoccupied for the last few years and um, it's going to be converted in. So the eight levels would be developed initially with five single and two double bedroom units. Another floor would be released later with 12 apartments. This is something that's uh, pretty cool really. I mean a good use for that building and I wish them very well with that. Prices are yet to be finalised, but single-bedroom units will be priced for first-time buyers in the 500s. So it'll be good to have something that allow people to get on the ladder. Prices are so high, otherwise they may get on, Castle said. But one would have to ask the question. The median house price in La Hutt is 761000 or at least it was last month. And by the time these are built, which I think it said uh, two years' time, where are those prices going to be? Watch the space. So here's something else that relates to affordability of houses, and it really is interesting because I'm a bit of a gadget guy. I'm, I like a bit of technology. I like things in housing that uh, maybe make some changes. And here's one we've talked about uh, in the past on the show, but this is more related to a local story. So I'll just rip into this, but this is under the stuff.co.nz business and innovation section. Here's the headline. Park Bench, printed in Hamilton, heralds possibility of 3D printed houses. 
So the the interesting thing here is concrete houses created using 3D printing technology are being touted as a possible remedy to New Zealand's housing crisis. So the technology was recently on show in Hamilton on Thursday during a lunchtime demonstration in Garden Place. Hamilton-based company Corox had been recruited by the City Council to create a stylized park bench using 3D-printed concrete. It would have been pretty cool to watch, albeit rather slow. The Waka-inspired bench was created using a robot imported from the Netherlands. The robot and its large mechanical arm are capable of constructing a range of concrete structures, including houses and commercial buildings. It's also been used to build a bridge, so it has a track record. Korok's director, Weifei Swellum, said, we're effectively limited right now only by our imagination. Now, he's an architectural engineer and said automation is crucial to New Zealand achieving its building and construction aspirations. So building houses and commercial buildings using 3D printed concrete went from an idea to an actual product in Europe about five years ago. However, the idea is only just starting to be grasped in the Southern Hemisphere. When I moved to New Zealand in 2015, I realised that construction is a little bit behind, Swellum said. The future in construction is automation. It's not trying to do the same thing over and over again. Unfortunately, the automation in New Zealand stops in the manufacturing process and is not crossed over to the construction sites. So while 3D houses cost about the same as a traditional timber-framed house, it can be built a lot quicker. So Swellum said his robot can print the walls of a house in one week at speeds of up to 4.5 square metres an hour. That's pretty amazing um, for those of you who, who know what size 4.5 square metres is. Easiest way to think of that is one, one metre high and four metres or four and a half metres long. So the concrete houses still incorporate conventional building elements. So you're not going to print the roof, for example, or the floor slab. Uh, there are traditional elements that are going to be there, but generally you can have weather-tight walls within a week. Quite interesting to see if there's any pickup on that. If that's something you're interested in, there's plenty of uh, research you can do on the internet. Just look up 3D printed house and you can find some examples. And those are only going to get better and better over time. Concrete, of course, for those who have um, been in a house with concrete block wall or walls, keeps things cool in the summer and warm in the winter. That's just my opinion there. I'm not sure if that's actually based on science, but from my general observations and property management. Moving on now, we're just going to move on to another article about uh, the affordability of housing. And here's a headline that surprised me when I first read it, but then it made more sense. Mortgage payments are just as affordable for first home buyers as they were three years ago. To say that again, mortgage payments are just as affordable for first-home buyers as they were three years ago, thanks to falling interest rates and higher wages. Now, this article I would recommend that you have a look at. This is on interest.co.nz. Um, and that headline again, because you can type in those words to try and find it, mortgage payments are just as affordable for first-home buyers as they were three years ago. Why? Falling interest rates, higher wages... According to the Real Estate Institute of New Zealand, the national lower quartile house price was $520,000 in October. The lower quartile means that 25% of housing is below that mark. And that's actually increased by $85,000 or 19.5% since October of last year and by 157000 or 43% increase since October 2017. That's an average increase of $1,000 a week over the last three years for homes at the most affordable end of the market. So that's quite 
Amazing. $1,000 a week just for having a house, just having it sitting there. In Auckland, where the prices are more expensive, or the most expensive in the country, the lower quartile price has increased from 654000 two years ago to 769000 this year. And that's an increase of 31500 over the last 12 months and 115000 over the last three years. What does all this mean? It means a 10% deposit on a home at the national lower quartile would would have increased from 36000 three years ago to 52000 in October 2020. And the size of the mortgage needed to go with that would have increased from 326000 to 468000 over the same period. And again, 20% deposits would have increased significantly as well. So these are pretty steep increases, especially when you consider what has happened with the wages over the same period. Let's look at that. If you take the national median rate of pay for couples, that's male and female throughout New Zealand, aged 25 to 29. Uh, that's not an opinion. These are, the, these are the ways that they differentiate the stats. And assume that they're working full-time, that would give them a combined after-tax pay of $1,713 per week in October. So that's an increase of 2% per week and th- since three years ago, an increase of 8%. So again, we can relate that back to those uh, to those other changes. So over the last three years, the cost of homes and the part of the market likely to be of most interest to the first home buyers has increased 43.3%, while the take-home pay for typical first-home buyers on the median rate of pay has increased by just 8.2%. So that suggests that the lower quartile house prices have risen at more than five times the rate of after-tax wages for typical home buyers over the last three years. So to get a complete picture, though, of the pressure faced by first home buyers, we also need to look at what's happened to the mortgage interest rates over the same period. In October 2017, the average of the two-year fixed mortgage rates offered by the major banks was 4.7%, and from there it's fallen almost continually to 2.65% in October of this year. And that decline actually has a massive impact on mortgage payments. So if you purchased a home in October 2017 with a national lower quartile price of 363000 and a 10% deposit, you would have required a mortgage of 326000 as we said earlier, and that would have been about $446 a week or 20%, 28% of your take-home pay. However, if you did the same now, the mortgage, uh, the 10% deposit would have increased and that would have pushed up the um, Mortgage by $43.93 a week, even after allowing for the drop in interest rates. However, the take-home pay would have increased by $142 a week. So it's actually cheaper now to pay for a mortgage once you're into a home than it was uh, three years ago. So what's the problem, you might say? Well, the problem's fairly obvious. Extremely hard to save a deposit. And that's where things have been moving um, in such a way that it really is difficult for people there and uh, they have removed some of the loan-to-value ratios. But what I, the reason I wanted to suggest to you that this article from interest.co.nz is so interesting is it then goes on and shows a bunch of tables that show what you need to buy certain properties at certain prices in certain regions uh, and works out what your mortgage payments would be in those regions. And for that reason, the article on interest.co.nz is very interesting because once you can get past that deposit hurdle, then the payments are often quite a lot cheaper than rent, I've noticed. 
So that's all a bit technical. I might have filled your brain with a few numbers and figures there. So let's have a little bit of music to unwind. Uh, no offence, but this is Wake Me Up by Avicii. Feeling my way through the darkness Guided by a beating heart I can't tell where the journey will end But I know where to start They tell me I'm too young to understand They say I'm caught up in a dream Well life will pass me by if I don't open up my eyes Well that's fine by me so wake me up when it's all over When I'm wiser and I'm older All this time I was finding myself in You're back here on Property Matters. I'm Greg Watson on NPR, Manawatu People's Radio, Te Reo, Irarangi o Nga Tangata o Manawatu. 
Great having your company. And this article I saw just recently in the paper uh, made me laugh, uh, probably not in a good way, but you have to see the photo. This is on, on tvnz.co.nz uh, and it's in their New Zealand news section. The article is called How Small is Too Small? A Cozy Wellington Flat May Not Legally Be a Bedroom. So this is an interesting one. Uh, Le- this is the story. Lisa's bedroom in her Wellington flat is small and cosy, sun-drenched during the daytime. It's just large enough to fit her double bed pressed against the wall, but it might not fit the legal requirements for a bedroom. So this picture shows a double bed where you haven't even got room to tuck in the bed uh, easily on each side. In fact, I don't even know how she would do it. But uh, that Lisa's name has been changed in this article due to the fears of retribution from future landlords. So just uh, as before I go any further, this is under our um, dodgy landlords, dodgy tenants type section of the show. She said she didn't realise how unusual her room was until she posted online trying to find someone to take over the lease when she moves out. Now she pays $170 a week for the converted sunroom in a flat with seven other people in Wellington. Now Stop for a moment. Imagine how much that landlord is making in rent if she's got the sunroom and there's seven other people in there and she's paying 170 a week. So when she posted the ad for 130, she faced ridicule, ridicule and criticism and it was compared to the cupboard under the stairs in Harry Potter and others followed with mocking images of other tidy spaces. So um, Classic. I was a bit shocked. I knew it wasn't the fanciest room, but people really thought it was bad, she told One News. Now, under the housing improvement regulations, a bedroom needs to have an area of at least 6 metres and a minimum width of 1.8. That's just the minimum requirement for one person. If two people are staying in the room, it needs to be at least 10 square metres. It's not clear whether Lisa's room fits the bill. Tenancy Services' Steve Watson says, If tenants are worried their housing doesn't meet requirements, they should talk to their landlord. And if a resolution or outcome cannot be reached, Tenancy Services provides information regarding a number of options to resolve a dispute, which include fast-track resolution, mediation or tenancy tribunal hearings. So get out your measuring tapes, have a look if your uh, room uh, has an area of at least 6 square metres and a minimum width of 1.8. It's a pretty small place. Six six square metres is two metres by three, in case you're wondering. Lisa says it's obviously wrongdoing on the landlord's behalf, and I think things like this are pretty common occurrence in a place like Wellington, she says. But I personally don't know if I want to get bogged down with the processes and fight that I think would come with it. So there are concerns as the housing crisis continues to bite that more tenants will be forced into ill-suited properties with few alternatives. This shows the dire lack of rentals available and out-of-control rental prices are making tenants desperate, says Anna Mooney from Advocate Renters United. Sorry, Advocacy Group Renters United. Renters are having to take what they can get for what they can afford. The alternative is having nowhere to live. So interesting article there. Uh, This one here is uh, this headline from the Taranaki Daily News. Landlord evicts tenants from three properties for intentional damage. So it shows a photo of a man with a wrecked property uh, that's landlord Matt Harib. Damage at two of his rental properties including blocked, overflowing toilets, smashed walls and broken windows, damaged kitchens, stained carpets, discarded clothing and fire pits on the front lawn. The mess will cost Harib, who's an earth-moving contractor who owns 20 rental properties around Taranaki, more than $20,000 to repair. His grandparents had rentals and he decided to move into the business to give himself something to fall back on. 
But now he's not so sure. He says landlords have fewer rights to evict troublesome tenants than ever before. In the past month, he's had to evict tenants from three rental properties in Waitara for excessive damage and bad behaviour. He took a tour by stuff of two of those properties revealed damage caused by the respective tenants, a solo mother with two teenagers and a group of two to three adults. In the first property, discarded clothing, shoes and whiteware were dumped both inside and out. A fire pit on the front lawn showed where tenants had burnt rubbish, while deep tyre marks in the large open space was evidence of cars doing wheelies. Inside walls were smashed, cupboard doors and torn off hinges and carpet stained. The toilet was blocked that had not deterred the tenants from using it until it overflowed with human waste, Harrop said. In the second property, the scene of destruction was much the same apart from a pile of rabbit droppings in one bedroom and attempted efforts to repair holes and smashed in walls. Both properties had been extensively renovated 18 months ago with new carpets, kitchens and bathrooms before being rented out. The repairs will set him back more than $10,000 per property with little chance of insurance paying out. Now I'm going to do a pause on the article here. Here is something to bear in mind that Mr Harrod probably did not realise. Insurance on rental properties have come a very long way in recent years. There are superb insurance companies that, that cover these sorts of things, so you don't need to be out of pocket. So it's easy to say that insurance won't pay out, but if you had the correct insurance and correct type of insurance, it would. And if you're doing your landlording job properly, it definitely would. So he says, people go on about landlords charging high rents and not offering quality rentals, but I'm sick of landlords getting a bad name, he said. We work our butts off to make our properties livable, and this is the result. Harib said, in spite of screening, tenants tell lies, use drugs and get friends to write references for them. It's very hard to screen them when they come up with sad stories, so maybe he shouldn't be managing his own properties and should be using a more processed approach through a property management company. Just saying. He then goes on to talk about, where are we? Yes, he says that the... um, he makes a comment about how the tri- once you go through the rulings and get uh, the order that the tenants owe you money, he says the tribunal can demand a minimum payment of $5 per week, but you're lucky if you get half of it before they disappear. And just to reiterate again, there is extremely good insurance. However, there isn't insurance against bad landlording. In this article from Stuff Business Property, says landlord acted slowly and minimally to address a drafty cold Auckland house. A South Auckland tenant has been awarded almost $9,000 after her landlord acted slowly and minimally to address issues which made a rental home drafty and cold. Rosny Hanneman took her landlord's agent, Realty 2000 Limited, to the Tenancy Tribunal twice over maintenance issues at the Randwood Wick Park property near Manurewa. Tenancy adjudicator Robert Key said various windows and doors in the house were not properly sealed, making the house drafty and cold. He said damp was getting in and causing mould. Hanneman said a 2019 application that a landlord had failed to maintain the property for several years with repairs needed to fix leaks in the garage, kitchen and roof which caused mould. Key acknowledged three work orders since then had been substantially addressed but the landlord still needed to address four issues by January 31st around draftiness and mould. The tribunal noted that the landlord lived in China and regrettably died in 2019 and until her son took over there were delays in getting the maintenance work done. However, Key awarded Hanuman the total of $8,926 in compensation and exemplary damages as a result. I am conscious that significant improvements have been made to the house in the last few months but things would have been much worse in late 2018. 
Key said the landlord was aware of the maintenance issues but for a long time acted slowly and minimally, if at all, to address them. Several tribunal orders have been needed to get substantial compliance. The effect on the tenant was significant. She suffered serious emotional distress and physical discomfort because of the breaches. But the landlord had asked the tribunal to take into account that the rent was set at a low level in relation to the house's condition and below market rent when making its decision. Now this follows on from something I talked about last week. Setting the rent low doesn't mean tenants will let you off the hook and adjudicator will let you off the hook for substandard housing. So be very, very careful of that. That's all we've got this week on uh, Property Matters. It's been lovely having your company. I'm Greg Watson. You can find me on the internet, Greg Watson and Palmerston North, in terms of uh, housing advice and those sorts of things. Love to have your company here on Property Matters. See you again next week. If you're a fan of NPR, listening to our podcasts and live stream has never been easier. Just search for accessmedia.nz on the App Store or Google Play and download the app with the Kiwi Fruit logo. Once you've got it, pick Manawatu People's Radio from the list of stations and go find your new favourite show.